Hey guys, friend of the show, Shady Rays, has an exciting new offer for all you Passing Dimes fans. For the next 30 days, you can get 40% off when you buy two or more pairs of sunglasses. Just click the link in our show notes or on our Instagram bio to shop these awesome deals. Use discount code TEAM to get the offer. Shady Rays, live hard, we got you. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Passing Dimes. This, this is a big one. We got a two-time Olympian. He's represented Canada at the Pan Am Games. He's represented Canada over 100 times in an international competition, which includes eight FIB medals, 11 Norseka medals. He's a three-time national champion. He competed at the University of Toronto, where he's an OUA champion, and he just created this awesome project called the Binstock Angle. So please welcome to the show, Dr. Josh Binstock. Benner, thanks for doing this. Yeah, thanks, Josh. Yeah, big fan, big fan. I didn't know those stats myself about the uh, medals and, uh, and whatnot, so that's kind of cool. PVB Info is the go-to spot for me right now, I nice. think. Yeah, <laughs> I remember those. I had to count on my hands, though, the national championships. I know you and Maddie went back-to-back, and then I almost forgot you came back to, uh, and played with Schachter for one, so that gave you your third one, right? Oh, yeah, that's right. I was, I was unsure there because I wasn't really playing, but... I'm going to agree to play with somebody. It's got to be Sam. So I was like, okay, buddy, uh, you do everything. I'll try not to suck and give it away. And then uh, you be the X Factor and do it all. <laughs> Good pickup. Good pickup. Yeah, yeah that's fun for sure. Awesome. So I think uh, close friends of yours will know this, but I just want to set the record straight for fans listening that uh, you were a pretty good all-round athlete growing up and actually played hockey at a, at a decent level. So what made you make the switch over to, I guess, indoor volleyball first, but then get into beach volleyball? Yeah, I was pretty late coming on. I guess just, you know, didn't get drafted at the level I was playing. I was AAA, but um, you're playing so much hockey, and if I knew I wasn't going to make the next step, uh, it was just, you know, too much. And I figured, okay, well, let's, uh, let's give some other sports a shot. So in school, I just started playing everything. And then volleyball was something that I just uh, really enjoyed right away. I played baseball in the summer, so the, the swing was kind of similar. I actually probably didn't have, I think I swung like I threw a baseball, which is probably why I blew my shoulder out eventually. <laughs> but um, I just loved the game. It was something totally new and I hadn't really experienced before. It was tough, definitely tough transitioning from hockey because hockey, if someone's uh, mouthing off or you know, getting a little too comfortable, you can put them in their place physically. So that stops them quick. But volleyball, you, you can't really do that. So I, I had to uh, kind of check my emotions. I was kind of an emotional player initially. I mean, I, I still kind of am, I guess, but it, it was way worse when I first started. So I remember Conrad, you know, pulling me aside. He's like, hey, you know, I was like you. And I was like, whoa, my God, really? And I was like, yeah, you, like, yeah, you, you really got to, you know, try to uh, keep it keep it down a bit, though. And so I, I had to find that happy balance between uh, not losing it or, you know, being high or low and, and not being poker faced either. So, um, yeah, I just kind of started late. Uh, I remember I went to Madawaska and I was – B3 and everybody was like, what club do you play for? And I'm like, what? I don't, what club? I don't even know what you're talking about. So, <laughs> uh, I think grade 10, I was like a junior setter on my team. But after Madawaska, to be honest, I, that's when I fell in love with the sport. I already knew the sport was great, but just the culture that came with it. Everybody was, I went from being, you know, so apprehensive and nervous going there. Everybody was just so welcoming and supportive. Um, so that just added for my love of the sport. And then uh, I just, you know, like anything else, I was like, okay, let's give this a go. And I know I wasn't the most technically sound because I started late. So I figured I had to figure out ways I could still um, succeed, which were things kind of the intangible stuff, so to speak, not the technical stuff. Um, and then every year I kind of just got a little bit better. I was on the regional team. And then the next year I made the indoor provincial team. And uh, the year after that was the indoor junior national team uh, before U of T. So 
kind of just was you know, loving the ride and, and tried to push it as far as I could go. Nice. I didn't know about that indoor junior national team. So there's there's a fun fact for the show. So when did yeah, post-secondary... Was, sorry, go ahead. No, I was just saying I was the only uh, person uh, from Ontario on the team because at that time... We were at OAC. I think I was the last year of grade 13, so to speak. So everybody had a year of college or university ball under their belt, and I'm coming in the last. You know, I'm sure I was the last pick of the team. They kind of just probably just took me on, uh, you know, some some heart and some grit more. So I know there was more talented guys there, but it was insane the uh, the level of competition and how it prepared me for my first year university at U of T. So it was uh, yeah, it was a fun experience. Awesome. Yeah, the timing works out really well because we just had Sleener on the show and he talked about uh, he was coming back in his fifth year trying to get that fifth championship and you were kind of the rookie on the squad that year. What were your first impressions not only with Orist and kind of the recruiting process to U of T, but what was that first year at University Ball like for you? Yeah, I heard that show. It was great. I was pumped to see him on there. Uh, and I was pumped that he came back for a fifth because you know, the, I heard him talk about the culture and it was, it was kind of like you know passing passing of the, the guards and passing along what they've learned and I was I never really experienced such uh, poise and calm and confidence on a team before especially with volleyball because you know I hadn't really won anything in volleyball uh, at, indoor at that point you know, I was our club team was really just my high school team <laughs> being put into the OVA clubs uh, tournament so needless to say we got smoked there <laughs> and um, you know and we were on the provincial team so we did pretty well and the national team but we, you know we didn't win I think we lost in the Cuba so so stepping in every time I remember you know we were down a set or down I would always kind of panic and these guys it was crazy it was like no matter what the game score was or who we were playing or what the situation was they were just so poised and calm and confident and uh yeah it was just a culture that kind of Forrest brought um in, in training he kind of made practice a little bit more ruthless and savage than the game so if you could survive the battles in practice these guys it was it was the first time that i've experienced you know, really wanted to kill each other in practice and then totally switching gears and like going to lunch with each other and, you know, having a beer at, at night if we won or something like that. It, it, you know, it was clear because they didn't take it personally, even though anybody would step into the gym, you're like, oh my God, these guys hate each other the way we were going at it. But, um, well, I, I stayed low my first year rookie because, you know, they, they, they really make sure that, you know, the, you know your your role as it should be. You, know? you have to do the rookie stuff and, you know, get my water bottle ready and, you know, all, the, all that kind of stuff. But, um, yeah, the culture uh, that I learned from Morris and Sweeney and all those guys uh, was something that I took for the rest of my career. Nice. And how would you recommend, like, if somebody wants to recreate that culture? Because it sounds like it is the most thriving where practices are intense, where, like, if you practice at 70%, like, you're not really getting game ready versus you guys going forward. And maybe at that time, some practices were more tough than games, right? So with you coming through that and then eventually being a vet at U of T, how do you keep that thing going? Like, how do you make sure it doesn't leave the gym that you still have that brotherhood thing going? Yeah, I think it's uh, it's more of a group. Like if you're the one who's still bitter with someone after, it's more on you instead of that guy being the jerk. So, and you know, it's funny with the whole Jordan documentary, right? When I was asking why is this, you know, not being aired for so many years later, and people were saying, oh, it's because he didn't want to be seen as a as a jerk too much. Uh, and when you watch that, you're like, I mean, I guess I can see why you know Steve Kerr didn't like him because he challenged him and you know punched him in the chest or whatever, which he apologized after, but. Look what look what Steve Kerr contributed to won the championships, and then when you know that team got dismantled, he goes and wins the championships literally the next year in San Antonio. So would he do that without Jordan being the quote unquote jerk? I don't know. But, uh, you know, it's kind of I guess these days you know you hear you know I don't know if the generation is quote unquote soft per se, but with the you know participation medals and you, you know you kind of see in the OVA it's like here 
you know, 10 still gets the same <laughs> gold medal <laughs> as the, the top one. So I think, you know, people have to understand that, like, not everybody is going to win, which is okay as long as you grind and battle for that. Um, and, and nobody will take your take that uh, personally because I remember I think I didn't make the provincial team my first year because at uh, tryouts, you know, everybody, the coach is like, okay, I need a right side here, left side here. And you know, I was just being shy and timid and, and I wasn't seen because I didn't jump in there. Uh, and then next year uh, I was opposite and I'm jumping in. I kind of didn't care what people thought. And my buddy, my buddy thought I was a jerk after the fact, once he got to knew me, we were on the team together, you know, we were good buddies, but he's like, I'll never forget that day. You just pushed me, you know, stepped me aside, like Donald Trump style, you know, getting, getting right onto that position. I was like, sorry, buddy. I love you. But you know, when it comes down to game time, you got, you just got to be a savage. And uh, if, if, if someone takes that personally outside, it's more on them than you being a jerk. Nice, nice. And how did you find managing everything? Because I think you were on the beach national team while you're still in university, right? And obviously managing your studies and everything you wanted to do like professionally, it just sounds like you had a lot on the go. How did you find kind of managing being a, a top tier athlete, but also getting your studies in order? Yeah, that was definitely difficult managing the academic and athletic loads. But to be honest, uh, the U of T crew, like I was talking about before, they would help out in not only the athletic ways, but academic as well. Like Selena was talking about, you know, living together. Um, I live with a bunch of athletes, a couple of volleyball people, some other varsity sports. But they kind of, you know, sh showed you how to be efficient because you couldn't really, you know, do everything. Um, so you really had, it was about the 80, 20 rules, so to speak. And if you could nail that then you'd, you'd get by and you just had to prioritize. And obviously social life was sacrificed a little bit. Obviously we, you know, we had our fun, but it wasn't as frequent or you would use those times to go out and see friends as kind of rewards for getting your work done. It was also a little easier back then because you just had to win to be carted on the beach. Whereas it's not <laughs> like it was, uh, you know, a whole systemic you know thing and you had to be to practice every day and, uh, and you had to have all these criteria met and categories. You know, I think they had an under twenty four division. So if you just won nationals, uh, you were carded. So I just made sure that I, you know, peaked for that event and was able to keep the carding going. Yeah, let's get into that because Sleener kind of described it. And we got into like these wild, wild west talks about what the the national team was like in that era. Are you young enough to, or excuse me, old enough to play on the Labatt tour? You would have been one of the young guns before that kind of folded up, right? Yeah, I never got that chance. I always saw how cool that would have been, but no, no, I never got the uh, opportunity to play on it. Oh, so yeah, it was gone even before your time. So yeah, it was it was short-lived, but it sounds like it was enjoyed by everyone. So with these yeah. results, you mentioned national championships was a big one. Did you play internationally when you were still in university, or when did you start representing Canada? I did. I did. I, I kind of took my OSAP loan and <laughs> used that to, to travel. So I got, uh, ended up getting carding, right? So the carding takes care of your, uh, your tuition. But uh, I traveled, but I wasn't, I wasn't doing well. Uh, I mean, you kind of always have to lose before you win anyways. But, you know, to, be, to succeed on the world tour, the margin, I mean, especially even now, but the margin, you know, for winning was so small, you really have to commit fully. I mean, it was great experiences uh, learning what it took because it wasn't even about volleyball when you're on tour. I mean, everything's different. Uh, that's why there was many years where I was dominating uh, inter like nationally, like I was dominating at home, but struggling internationally. I felt bad for Maddie. I think that's when I was playing with him. And, you know, we'd always be like 15, 13, almost there. And, you know, they're serving me every ball. And he was so patient and supportive. And, uh, you know, it took me going through those uh, moments to understand what it actually took to make that 15, 13 for you. And, you know, in your mind, it seems like it's, you're always so close. But unless you kind of dig down and really look look within of what uh, what the issue is, you, you can't really 
flip that switch and make that step. So I was competing, but uh, wasn't succeeding then. And just to name drop again from Sleener's episode, one thing that I thought was fascinating was just the results-driven carding before there was like a centralized program. And I'm just wondering how you dealt with that being, I don't know, it's not that you're rooting against other Canadians, but you're probably not cheering for them either, right? Because if you're carded, maybe I can't be carded and we're at the same uh, international tournament, right? So how did you find, you know, being friends with somebody off the court and maybe even training with them at your, when you're at home? But when you're on the world tour, it's pretty cutthroat, right? Yeah, totally. You, you nailed it on the head there. And, um, and I think when everybody, uh, like, I think when everybody accepted that mindset, that's when you were able to succeed because you knew it wasn't anything personal. So no, I wasn't cheering for any other team. And to be honest, I kind of hope they lost, but I knew they were doing the same for me and we would still, you know, have dinner together. And it wasn't like, you know, I saw some other, not obviously name names, but other teams like oh i hope they do well because they have to be all political and cordial but it's like come on you know let's, <laughs> let's be real here you, you know you don't want them to win but that's okay you don't have to apologize for that because they're feeling the same way and i think us knowing that um we are able to you know keep the battles on the court and and not uh bring that back to the social time really uh, allowed i guess maturity everybody goes through initially it's a shock to be honest because of how savage it is but um, when you get, you know, understand how it, how it works, you're able to uh, manage it. So looking at your career, how do you, how did it feel as an athlete going through the change where we just have the system that is very evaluation friendly that says, go get your results and you'll be carded versus now there's going to be a centralized program. You have to be in Toronto. There's going to be hours that practices are offered. Like there's just more requirements, which I'm sure we could argue good and bad of, of both systems, right? But for you, somebody who lived through both of them, what was like the the big culture shock i would say at the time like i i'm trying to remember at that time i don't think it was well received right because it was such a big change from what everybody was used to yeah no you're correct yeah there's definitely pros and cons for both obviously the cons is you're lacking support so you know if you if you're not able to get the resources you need to succeed you'll kind of be struggling and if you need those resources you know the volleyball canada's right there provide those for you which is great but if you feel that you have you know that that particular system doesn't work for you and you have certain other coaches or certain other schedules or training regime that you feel works for you, uh, you're kind of stuck in that structure. So yeah, there's definitely pros and cons for both. You know what? I kind of it was good and like for initially for me, I, I didn't really have any structure, so it was a nice change. Initially, it was it was odd, but uh, but then eventually you're like, okay, after you go through certain years, you do know what works for you, and uh, we, you know, if you want to go somewhere else and you want to be in different training camps, you can't. So, uh, you know, it, it worked for me and it worked against me, but you kind of just have to find a way. You know, it's easy to kind of blame other reasons for things not working out, but um, you know, if if there's one way to be able to make something happen, you just gotta have to do what's best for yourself and. Let the chips fall where they may. Nice. And one thing I just want to touch on with with your career, looking at all your results, I think it's too easy to say in sports that you know sometimes you have to lose before you can win. I think that's too service level, and you kind of touched on it there, where you really grinded it out. And I mean, you and Red were doing well on the satellite and Challenger tour and medaled a couple times. You and Maddie Z were having great success at home. But what are some of those lessons you would really emphasize that like that's what I really needed to learn? Whether it be those tough third sets or or what are some little things that you're grinding? Because I think some people just think if they put in time on the world tour, they're eventually going to be successful. Versus you got to be grinding and still reaching for something, even though the results might not be coming right yeah no 100 percent. well so that's exactly what it is like i thought once you put enough time it'll come and it wasn't coming and it was <laughs> a long grind so it took a lot of kind of self you know insight and 
and being um, open and vulnerable. I mean, because, you know, beach isn't like any other sport where you are exposed, you know, more than any other sport. I think now there's obviously like tennis where you're exposed to just you, but you're not accountable to other people or other partners like you are because everybody knows quote unquote you know whose fault it is and it, even with double tennis you can still you have to be able to serve the other person whereas beach you can literally pick on that one person expose them they're struggling and you know there's no way around there's no time you know there's no substitution there's no um, you know setting the ball to somebody else so beach is a game where it teaches you so much about yourself whether you want to know it or not to be honest and i think what the flip for me was uh, it wasn't really embracing losing or failure like i was kind of always making many excuses in my head why i lost oh i was right there 15 13 or oh it's a little windy or oh uh, you know my stomach hurt i had a bad sleep or you know i would always internalize the excuses and if you know if you don't make those excuses for it you can actually look at what you did wrong and then take it in and be objective because the second you make an excuse the second you say you know oh, i was a little off here a little out there because of whatever reason like that's the second you allow your mind to go down the path of you know oh it wasn't within my control uh, which means you're not really you know like dealing with the problems at hand and the real issue like you're kind of bypassing the problems when you do that and then you can't grow from it so you know, what's the point of a loss if you really can't grow from that experience and get the most out of it? It's kind of just useless. So once I realized, you know, how, I mean, there's a whole thing going into it, which is why I've created this Binstock Angle, because, you know, I think we've all gone through that. Uh, it's just how do you actually, you know, flip that switch and make that change to, to success? Because it's a small, it's not, you know, we were not doing well for so long. And it was just the smallest change that kind of catapulted our success. So we were kind of always there, but to get that little flip is, is difficult. Great. I think our, our listeners are seeing that you have such a great great mind for the game. Just a, a couple more questions before we get to the Binstock angle. I was curious, look, again, looking at your results, that uh, you and Reader and actually Schachter, you decided to go back to the Norseka Tour. And I think there's... Well, uh, on the show, we've slighted Norsega because I think there's just some funny stories that sometimes it's just not organized well. But I think there's also like a, an ego point to it where you're a main draw guy, you're playing at the highest levels that maybe a, a lesser athlete or a weaker mindset would say, I don't want to go back to Norsega's like that's beneath me where it looks like you and Reader got comfortable, you were going deep into tournaments, same with Schachter. So when you made the decision to go to those tournaments, did that ever cross your mind where it was ego or you wanted to be in those tough moments where, man, we're expected to medal here, like we're getting off the plane, we're trying to win the tournament. Like, how did your mind mindset approach when you went to these tournaments which granted the show does it but other people do they call it like second tier sometimes yeah no that's uh that's a great point because you do you you know anybody that says not thinking about it at some point i don't know how, how truthful it would be because you go in there and you kind of have less to gain and more to lose because if you win it you're expected to win it and if you lose you're like whoa there's the main draw guy and you know we're, we're losing to whoever but we feel like we you had to earn it. Like I know there's different stars now. And I think there was kind of satellites we were playing. I didn't really have the whole star system, but you know, I, I see sometimes people jumping into these stars, uh, lower stars tournament without earning the right to get there. So for myself, we just were like, Hey, we, we need to earn uh, the right to be there. So to speak, I mean, we could have obviously gone, but you know, unless we're winning Norsecas, like unless we're winning nationals, we're not going to Norsecas. Unless we're not winning Norsecas, we're not going, you know, the, uh, the lower FIVs. Unless we're winning the, um, the satellites or the the, um, the one stars or whatever they're called now, then I'm not going to you know the, the major series, and that was the path I took because it was objective. It wasn't like my ego telling myself I'm too good for this, uh, which is scary. Uh, and you're, you know you're vulnerable, you're exposed, but 
I mean, it's the only way to be truthful with yourself because, uh, you know, I, I spent enough years on the road wasting enough time and money not being truthful. So uh, the moment you can kind of get real with yourself, um, that's when, you know, you'll actually ironically see in success when you just focus on the process instead of worrying about the outcomes. Wow. Wow. This is awesome stuff. So to, to dive into your first Olympic run, that was the first time Continental had been offered, right? So everybody's brand new to the situation. And with you growing up that you're not cheering for Canadians, well, now you're in this almost like a Ryder Cup format where you're teamed with another Canadian pair and you guys are responsible to earn the bid together and then fight it out when you get home. So how did you kind of go through that situation with not only Martin Reeder as your partner, but Ben Saxon and Christian Redmond? Like, did you guys meet as one big team? Like, what was the mood around when you were at that first tournament trying to fight for the bid for Canada? Yeah, that was definitely very awkward. Something that's never been done. You know, I don't think any other country has done that in terms of like the playoff match. So the rest of the world obviously uh, loved watching that. They were telling us. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, it was awesome. I mean, I was good friends with Ben, but really, like, well, one of my best friends is Christian. So that was a little bit more like, oh, you know, I love this guy. And then I got to like, play against him for one for our dream kind of uh, our game. But yeah, you kind of just had to take it like, yeah, you, you were cheering for him. I remember watching the match in Mexico. Uh, it was so hot, and he's just, you know, so tired, and I was like, come on, man, I don't want to play in this, <laughs> and uh, they ended up losing tight, and then, so I'm just like, oh, God, okay, like, you know, and Pete's not my friend, it's uh, I'm the pastiest guy out there, I probably shouldn't be playing beach volleyball, but we knew we had to get ready for that, and that was uh, a huge win by uh, Reader and I against um, Mexicans in Mexico, because those fans are just ruthless, like, you know, I, I don't speak Spanish, but I think uh, there's some kids in the stands who probably shouldn't be hearing what they were yelling, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, that was uh, it was fun to hear a pin drop after we won that. That was pretty cool. Um, yeah, and then coming back home, it was interesting because we actually had like a week to prepare for a match, which I've never had ever. You know, you show up to a tournament, you find out who's in your pool the the day before, or the you know, and then you try to scout for that. But for this, we had um, preparation, so we literally practiced the same time uh, that match was going to take place at two p.m. We practiced the exact area on the beach at that time. Uh, we tried to mimic the, you know, the, our training partners to be a similar style game to Christian and Ben. So we tried to control as much as we could, uh, which is why I think it went so well because obviously super nervous. Um, but you know, when I, especially when I have like my friends and family there, it kind of just gives me a next little boost where I just can't lose in front of them. And and uh, we were just so prepared for that, so we actually felt really com confident going in. How do you prepare mentally for that? Because I'm just going down the checklist. Like it, it felt like every week it was the biggest game of your life. You got to play a golden <laughs> set. You got to play the bid for Canada. And then like your reward is to go to the Olympics where the lights are brighter and there's more attention and more external distractions than ever, right? So you're just going up this ladder of it, it's the biggest week of your life in, in your volleyball career, right? So how did you manage that again, being like the first time a Canadian athlete had gone through this system? Yeah, totally. I uh, I don't think I even could you know, sleep the night before. I couldn't eat breakfast that day. I was like, this is the moment, you know. I've been dreaming about like, um, you know, everybody's gonna be around and stuff. But yeah, you just can't look ahead because the moment you get complacent at all, because I've been there, is the moment you get bit. The moment you kind of you know look for too far in the future. Like yeah, you have your goals, but then you break it down into smaller goals and you just kind of focus on what's immediately in front of you and try to stay in the moment and being present as much as possible even though it's pretty tough because it's super distracting like i don't really even deal with any like social media and really talk to too many people that uh that week trying to just be as you know less distracted as possible um and then you're like okay that job's done and now but you know you never really took that sigh of relief until you know, you're, you're, you're there, which is, you know, why I kind of felt like I wanted to go back to Olympics again, because 
we were pumped about being there, but then, then we didn't really do as well as we wanted to because we were just excited to get there versus, okay, let's actually try to do some damage here. So yeah, you really have to take it kind of quote unquote day by day. I know it sounds cliche with the hockey guys. Oh, take a shift by shift. You know, everybody's fine. <laughs> But that's uh, pretty much how it goes. You just have to stay in the moment and be present. Yeah, I think it's it's so fascinating. I got into a YouTube wormhole, and Chael Sonnen's got this awesome video, and he says his coach lays down a two-by-four and asks everybody to walk across it. And then he goes and gets two eight-foot ladders and puts the board across that and says, now who wants to walk across it? And tries to convince them that like the action is the same, even though the environment's a little bit different. And I thought that's uh, just a great metaphor for what stress feels like and what pressure can do. So when you, when you get to the Olympics and you're around you know, other people from the circuit, people you've seen on the world tour, like, what is the big change you think at the Olympics? You mentioned like you're happy to be there and that might have changed your mindset, but are, are the distractions that much different than, say, like a five star on the world tour? Uh, yeah, because uh, it's just multi sport games. So I think like the top teams in the world of all sports, they don't even stay in the village. Like, I remember, I think Brink Reckerman, they won it in London. They weren't staying there, but they did stay in Beijing. I'm not saying all the teams, but uh, I've, I've seen that kind of the top profile athletes in the the top teams don't really stay in the village. I mean, we didn't. Ours was in Rio, at least. We, we did in London, but it was an hour and a half drive from the venue one way in Rio. So that really helped a lot to minimize distractions. But, yeah, because it's not just volleyball there, right? We have so much more to deal with, kind of the press and you know, different – the family, the friends. Um, it's just like, you know, something that's happening once every four years versus the major series, which is insane in terms of the magnitude, but, you know, there's six of them a year, right? So it's just the uh, – I guess the rare – rareness that's a word kind of adds to the um yeah the distractions so one of the bigger personalities in our sport and we got to give this guy a shout out because he, he did go to the olympics with you can you tell us anything about martin reader i think anyone who's ever seen him play high energy guy loves to talk like just a good good guy to have around our sport because he's just so involved and wants to talk to people and like i said fun guy to watch like any, any stories or memories you have other than obviously the the olympics with that guy but anything that stands out in your mind with the the time you spent with martin Oh man, yeah, he he definitely is one of a kind. It's like you know, wherever I go with him, you know, there's always um, interest or, or stories because you know, guys want to kind of be like him, girls want to be with him. Like he just the way he is physically, but also personality-wise, it's great. Like if someone is in a room and they're kind of insecure, they'll already kind of try to you know flaunt their feathers like they're a peacock because they see him as a threat meanwhile he's just like not even you know they're, they're not in on his radar he's not even like thinking <laughs> this is like some kind of contest but because of you know his uh you know his persona and stuff people again so it's great it's a great filter for you can see who's uh who's in secure in the room but uh well back to what you were saying about you know anything that gets you going and he depending on who you're playing you know you can kind of get a more aggressive or a little bit more passive but when uh, he got up the most for Cubans, because I'm sure, as you know, I've seen indoor and beach, they 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 really get off on their you know alpha male ish, and they every time they get a kill, you know, it doesn't matter if it's one nothing, they're, they're yelling across the net in your face, uh, you know, they're just super vocal and loud and aggressive, and it usually works because they're very powerful, they're very physical, and they kind of just you know dominate uh, physically and mentally their opponents, but uh, not Martin Reeder, no, he. He takes that personally because he, he sees how they kind of, you know, bully people, so to speak. So he uh, finds a new level. And I'll never forget when we were playing them in the semifinals of the Continental Cup to qualify for the Olympics in 2012. And we had to beat them. And they were just dominating everybody. And the sand, of course, classic Merseca's rock hard, right? So got, they are just hammering balls. But, um, you know, if you get a block, it's also just as big, too. 
and that was one of the best matches I've seen him play. He, you know, he'd, he'd be, you know, if he got a kill, he'd let him know. And normally he doesn't go out of the way, you know, to talk some smack to people, just do his job. But with these guys, they got him going. But I think what really got him angry is because he felt, and I think he was right, the coaches were, you know, kind of, I wouldn't say cheating, or maybe it was full on, but they were, uh, he thought they were giving them our blocking signals. So, because they, they were just, it seemed like they were pre-choosing and they knew what we were doing. I'm like, and I was going late too. So I'm like, there's no way they saw that. Something's going on. So, you know, and he was looking at them and the coach was kind of you know, making some certain signals. We don't know what it means. So, but, well, you know, well, that they couldn't stop. That means our defense. So I just remember it's close in the match, maybe 18 all. It goes up and he gets a ball in the face harder than I, I've actually ever seen anybody get hit in the face. But it was off his nose. It wasn't even like his forehead. So his nose, poor guy, blows up it it goes like slow-mo you know into the back of their corner we're watching it like what's going on because he obviously it's not going to be straight down and it lands in their corner in the back and he he looks back and he gets like the most primal yell you know like, <laughs> and he has no idea that his face is just full of blood he knows he got packed but you know he, just the drone's going i don't think he felt any pain and he looks up to the coach you know points at him you know he smacks his own shots he's like you know pretty much saying like you can cheat all you want you're not going to be able to win and he was i was just riding his coattails on that and i was like yes just keep doing that I'll, i'm trying not to blow it here but uh, i'll never forget the face when he turned back to me and it's just like you know he, he's a gladiator style you know person anyways i know he loves that kind of stuff too so that was just a perfect moment for uh for him looking back and then pointing to the coach and then you know these guys we the Cubans were definitely intimidated, and they, he beat him at their own game. Oh, that's, a, that's amazing. It's a good shout-out to Reader on that one. <laughs> that's awesome. And then just to, to fast-forward a little bit, you pick up Schachter, and you guys are doing well, and you guys win an event, which I think was the first gold medal since John and Mark won Berlin, I think, when you guys won. Was it that Argentina event in 2015, I think? Yeah, yeah, I heard that. Yeah, exactly. So that that's an awesome result. You guys are going to Pan Am, like you're you're doing all these things, and then you find yourself in this continental event again, right? So was it? Does it ever get easier? Did it? Did your experience kind of help bring Schachter through the process, or how did it feel the second time when you're going through all this? Yeah, I think I was able to kind of you know bring some uh, experience or or perspective to him. I mean, honestly, I feel like the guy is one of the best players in the world. I'm, I, mean, I don't mean one of as in like the you know top uh, 20 or something like that top 10 he just can do everything so you know I, I, my goal and my job was to find out what buttons to push or how to you know, <laughs> you know bring them along to to bring out that uh, maximum performance and um yeah he was he was a rock he was always there uh because you know people in those environments they uh they're kind of just saying you know uh, you know it's it's um people have said in the past with those big matches. Oh, it's just another game. And I think they're just trying to minimize the pressure, but you know, I found that's not true and you know, it's not true. And even though, you know, like it's the same motion with the uh, two by four, you know, you're up there because if you, you just know that if you fall off two by four, you're not going to die. But if it's up, you know, 20 feet, even the same motion, you know, so that, so there's no way around that. I, you know, I've, I've seen some of the books like pressure is just, um, I'm not going to name names of who wrote it, but you know, pressure is just psychologically made, which it is, okay? But that doesn't mean that, you know, you don't have to feel it. So I've just realized that um, instead of avoiding the feelings of pressure and trying to deflect the nervous butterflies, um, I know that I performed well in the past when I felt it, so I kind of just have a relationship with it and, and embrace it now because I know it's inevitable, I know it's going to be there, and I know I've been able to perform well. So instead of kind of trying to fight it, kind of just go with it. 
But the the match against uh, Sam and Grant was a little different because, you know, with 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 Redmond and Ben, you know, we hadn't really played each other too much, and we were pretty even going in. So we knew, you know, kind of anything could happen, and obviously anything could happen with Grant and Sam. But I think we had beaten them maybe the last five or six times in a row. So. And they were playing amazing. They actually are the reasons we even had that game because they saved us in Sochi. They were playing unbelievable. So we're going into a game where we kind of have everything, you know, to lose nothing to gain, so to speak, because obviously the game of the Olympic spot, but just the way that um, we should be beating them because we beat them the last six times. But they are feeling confident, and uh, and they played like it. So it was uh, they played like it all the way until the end of the match, which is you know what experience really can do, especially in beach volleyball. Yeah, I I mentioned to you, I I got caught watching that game, and I have this fight with my friends off air all the time about. I think it's a little bit overblown about how how you should feel or how confident you are. And I, I want to hear it from the horse's mouth here. You're down eleven eight. I wrote it down eleven eight in the third, and you guys come back to win it. So in that timeout when you're down eleven eight, are you guys like are you feeling confident or are you admitting that like we gotta make a play and there's some sort of like action here, right? Where there's mental toughness I, I get is a fascinating thing, but eventually there just has to be an action attached to it, right? So down eleven eight, spot for the Olympics, like what are you and Sam talking about in that timeout? Yeah, no, you're totally right. Mental toughness, yeah, is very important, but you're right. You have to actually execute the action. You know, I've been in so many situations where I've been down and come back and I've up and I've lost. And, you know, it sounds cliche, but you have to stay optimistic. And it's easy to do that when you're winning, but so tough to do that when you're losing. But I've seen it happen and I've been a part of it where you know it's possible. And you just have to find that kind of little uh, momentum. You just have to find that little spark to get going. Now, to be honest, we played well. We, we, had, a, we had a good game plan after that moment. But... You could tell they didn't play the same after that 11-8 uh, switch. And it was because after a timeout, you have that moment, because I've been where they are. They came into the game with nothing to lose. They lost a bunch of times. They're playing free. They're playing aggressive. And they're taking risk, and it's all working out. But as soon as they think about the fact that they actually now have something to lose, uh, you play tentative, and you play a little passive, and and that's their game kind of changed. So I'm not saying... Uh, of course, we we played well. We deserve it, but they didn't play the same, and it was because uh, you know that moment uh, the the psyche changed, and they're they're all that aggressive and playing free and risk taking um, went away, and that's what kind of makes you champions because I've seen it. You know, I've been on both sides, the losing side and the winning side. When you're still able to take those risks and and play free when uh, you are in that situation of you know, the utmost pressure. So that was kind of the uh, we just kind of we've been in that situation before. At least I have, so we were able to kind of um, see what was happening and, and we knew what was going to come next, and and then we executed. Now we got to get Shakter on the show at one point, and when we had Garrett May on the show, he talked about when they won worlds. Like Garrett was convinced that Shakter was like the best player in the world at that tournament. He was just doing everything, and you <laughs> talked about like the skill level he has. But I think anyone who's ever been at a practice with you two or close enough to sit courtside, you guys have a running dialogue the whole game, and like you, you have this focused attention. And I'm just wondering if you could share a little bit about like where your attention goes, and even if somebody scored against you, if they did the action you wanted, it almost felt like that was in your pocket for down the stretch. So. And it almost felt like even when you guys would cheer, like that was calculated, right? So did you guys hit it off right away with like how tactical and like methodical you guys were going to be with how you both saw the game? Yeah, well, well put. <laughs> Who would think a cheering is uh, is thought about in the skill in itself? Yeah, we learned that real quick. Uh, we were playing against uh, Ricardo Emanuel, defending gold medalist. I don't think we cheered loud once 
but every time we got a point, we were like super quiet. Let's just hopefully get this. And, you know, we ended up doing this. So it's funny. And then, <laughs> you know, when you're playing against a team where you know you kind of have a little bit more um, swag and confidence, that's you can, uh, you know, do that differently. So, yeah, no, you're right. Little things, then that, that is the difference. Uh, it's, it's hard to see that to the untrained eyes. So kudos to you for picking all that up. But, yeah, because you know you're going to have to give something up. And you can't really, you know, if someone scored against you, was it my uh, assignment that was missed was it my partner's assignment missed or did they just see something and good on them but yeah you're using that for later because a lot of teams will uh, set somebody up and give you something at the beginning because and really it comes down to you knowing what their favorite shot is you make a play for them to hit their, their favorite shot in the end and if they beat you by hitting a shot that they're not comfortable with then you know good on you because you're obviously not going to win all the time but if you kind of in a nutshell have that type of mindset uh you'll win most most of the time nice and how much did trust come into it or as him being like the young buck on the team could he ever call you off and be like no we're running this play like when you're in the heat of the moment like did a did a leader come through on that team or because he's at such a high level you're at such a high level how was the communication when you're you're running these plays and maybe you don't see the same thing uh, on the same play yeah, initially, you know, he was uh, kind of a sponge. Like, like Garrett said, the guy can do anything physically and technically. Um, and it wasn't to a point where he understood the tactical game. But he picked up everything I was saying so fast. It was honestly like sometimes I'll play with people. <laughs> they'll just be like, you know what, just give me one. It's okay, you're, you're talking too fast. You're saying too much. I can't uh, I can't <laughs> follow it all. But he, he absorbed it all, and he was on my level. Um, so, yeah, he became, uh, you know, the teacher pretty quick in terms of him being able to uh, to make a play, you know, and plus he'd give me that look, like sometimes he'd be like, I don't know, you call it. And sometimes he'd look back and be like, do this, serve here, we're running this. And then it would work out, you know, he's in that zone. So we, we got a feel for uh, when he was able to take over and I tried to just support that as much as I could. Awesome and awesome. And one thing I'll never forget when I first started working with the national team, you actually gave kind of like a guest speech to the next gen group. And one thing that stuck with me from that chat was at your peak, you were sharing things that you wanted to work on in practice. And I think people might say, well, that, that makes sense. You want to work on your weaknesses. But to go back to the carding thing, you're sharing this with people who are going to obviously try to take your spot or you're sharing this with Grant and Sam at the time who are fighting with you for that Olympic spot. So looking back, like how did you come to terms with that where you said like, guys, I really want to work on, and it could be something as simple as serve me on my right because I'm not very good there. But how did you speak up and practice and say, I need to work on this. Can you guys push me in this area? Yeah, initially I, I wanted to avoid that at all costs, but then, you know, I saw it on tour where guys I'd be training with them before and they would put themselves in a vulnerable situation where it was their weakness, they were being exposed, and they would lose, but they didn't care because then they were, you know, I guess confident moving forward in the actual game because they worked on that. And that took so much vulnerability but also confidence because they were willing to show people what they were weak at. But you don't get over that hump, and that was my issue at a lot of times where that always would come back. So unless you're willing to, like, just, you know, go up to, like, you know, the brink of disaster – you, you won't get over that. So that was something that I remember seeing on tour. And, you know, I remember seeing the Vikings, these guys, like, they get there, they're being interviewed. Another player on tour, I'm not going to name name, but they, and he's very, very successful. And they ask him, well, you know, what are your blocking tips and this and that? He's like, well, I'm not quite retired yet, so I don't want to, I don't want to get everything away. And then the Viking guys, you know, the Norwegians, Molson, they, they get interviewed and they are giving out everything. And it's, <laughs> Which is why they're so good because they honestly are they're so young, but they play and their experience is already like they're old. But they uh, they just tell everything because if you're going to take one thing away, 
then they'll just adapt, right? And that's really it's all it's about. You can know game plan and all that stuff, which is why I love the beach game because there's no coach out there. And it's just about who can adapt uh, and continual adjusting. So if you're not able to adjust on the fly, you're going to lose anyways. And they knew that they could do that on the fly and they could adjust to any style. So um, I, that's when I was confident in myself that even though if they do want to make this um, about my weakness, then I'll prepare for that and then you know, be able to have a game plan to, to adjust back for that. So yeah, you have to go through that process for it. And I think it's awesome with all that you've shared. And when we look back at your career, I mean, being a two-time Olympian, you, you've won medals, you were at the, the Pork Finals with the majors, which for a Canadian men's team to be doing that at the time was awesome. But do you, do you remember when you're in it? Like, are there little victories that you're taking as, like, confirmation that you know you're on the path? Or how did you like to look at goal setting? Like, are you a process guy that you're just going to work hard and plug away and things are going to happen? Or... Are you almost like, uh, I like the Michael Jordan example where he's making up stories and he's finding like these little battles about like, oh, my GM thinks this guy's good at defense. I'm going to tear him apart. Like little things that happen on almost like a daily basis. How did you find yourself going through that where it, it can be a grind on tour, but do you get these moments of success? Do you, do you let the external kind of thing give you motivation or do you always just like to stick to your process? Uh, no, I definitely had to uh, do the former. I, I mean, the process is very important, but you have to be able to adapt. So, yeah, I would do things like that because if I knew that I wasn't uh, performing well, yeah, I would uh, kind of, you know, either give myself little, you know, pinches on my legs to like, wake myself up and Sam thought I was like sick or something like that. I'd be showering and get all these bruises on my thighs. He's like, what is wrong with you, man? You have problems. But, you know, you got to find certain ways to like elevate your game. But my, uh, you know, everybody needs their competitive advantage and everybody has a different style. So I knew that, okay, I wasn't going to be, you know, as physical as the other person, but I was able to study their game and use their kind of weaknesses to, and expose them. So the way I was able to kind of succeed, so to speak, were those kind of intangible things that nobody could really see that I would make it look like it was kind of, oh, I got lucky there again, I got lucky there again, because, you know, if you look at my style of play, it definitely wasn't pretty. Like, I'd be shanking balls, but, you know, I knew, we knew, we had plays for, like, if I passed a by accident, or, you know, if, uh, you know, if I was tired, then I would, you know, run across the net on change, side change, make it look like I was fine, or, you know, when you're fixing your glasses, or kind of just all those little intangible things, because, you know, I forget what he talked about, but he's like, MJ was started to be the next level when he took control of the momentum of games. He's like, he was always amazing, you know, in terms of scoring, but it was it was the intangible parts where he could feel the game and, and let the game come to him and, and not rush and just little things like that, uh, you know, when to deviate from the game plan or, you know, how to improvise and trust your intuition um, in the moments where, like, all your logic and reasoning is telling you something else. You know, sometimes the coach will be like, this is the game plan. And if you deviate from it because it's not working, you lose. Coach is like, well, you know what? You didn't listen to me. You didn't, you didn't uh, do the game plan. That's why you lost. And then the next time I'm out there, uh, it's not working out. I want to do the same thing, but I don't want to get in trouble by the coach. So I stick with it, which I shouldn't have. And, you know, and then you end up losing, but you can't get in trouble by your coach. So it's like knowing when to make those changes yourself um, is really when, you know, that, that happened for me. And what would be an example of a, of a feedback loop of that? Because I think it's fascinating to hear you do that. But for a younger athlete who wants to go execute this, is it just almost trial and error where you got to like when to clean your glasses, when to cheer, when to run on a side change? Like when did you get confirmation that that was something you wanted to do or or just that it felt right in your game? There were several, several times. I mean, if I go to you know, Porridge, the, the biggest one of them all, you know, we were talking about going over, we were playing um, – 
the big right side guy, Varenhorst, and um, for at least the biggest one of them all for our for our results. And and he was you know massive. He was killing us, and we couldn't stop him. We did get him on him before, and we we're like, oh, we'll break him, we'll break him. And uh, you know, I, I remember Sam kind of questioned she would go over to uh, Numidor at the end, uh, and I was like, you know what? Let's wait until the end of the game just to give him a ball and, and see. And, but if you wait too long, you might not even get there. And I ended up serving him like two just poopy floaties, nothing special at all. Shank, shank, you know, and then we ended up winning, I think, 15-13. But, you know, at that moment, you you wouldn't really know because, yeah, it's all experience. But the key is you have to take those risks and then learn from those risks because, you know, you can't really tell someone, oh, this is, you know, how you clean your glasses. Or you can tell them what to try, but you don't know if it's going to work or not. So as long as they attempt something and then they log it in their mind, like how did that work out last time? And then you adjust the other way. And then you kind of, you know, find that happy medium and calibrate in between there. So that's, that's why I love the beach game because really usually the people that are winners, those are the most experienced. These, these, uh, you know, Norwegian guys are throwing that out the window. But before them, literally the only people usually that were one were the uh, ones who had experience because they've been through it all. So there's no real way to like, find out what's going to work before. You just have to try, but don't, uh, don't, I guess, you have to find out what's going to work. And if it doesn't work, log it and make sure that you understand why it didn't work instead of just kind of sloughing it off. This is awesome, man. So just last question on this area. Are you keeping a journal? Are you just like remembering because it's so emotional that you can like recall it quickly? Like how are you keeping a database of all the stuff you've banked over the years? At the time, yeah, no, I didn't do a journal initially, and that's uh, a great question. And I started doing that after because you're so emotional after the game, whether you won or lost. Um, and Leonard was great at this. He's like, he didn't want to debrief after a match um, within at least a day or two because you won't really be objective. So, you know, you should write down what you're feeling, and then you wait another day or two, and then write down again what your thoughts are. And because it's hard for you to know that because you're so – it's subjective. You don't see the difference. But when you actually read the two journal entries, uh, they're so polar opposites because one is just objective and neutral and one is just coming from emotion. It's, it's so difficult to play with emotion. I'm sure you hear this obviously in all sports. Um, so, yeah, having a journal in terms of what worked well, what didn't. And, you know, there's times where you know you leave the game. You know, you're in Switzerland, it's so expensive, your friends and family partners, like, you know, you're feeling, this. that's why I love this game, you can feel you know, larger than life or smaller than a little, you know, crumb, and, uh, and you might not want to admit it to other people yet, um, but if you write down what you're truly feeling, it'll, it'll work out for you in the end, but it's just, uh, it's tough to, to be exposed and vulnerable like that, so the first step is, you know, being true to yourself. Because you can make all the excuses you want, but you know deep down what, what really happened. And then hopefully you obviously have a partner or a kind of small small group, whether it's coach or somebody that you can be honest with. And that's when the true growth starts. Wow, this is this is awesome, man. We're going to have to get you back on because I could talk about this all day. But I, <laughs> I, I really want to talk about this exciting project you have. So everybody's heard about you know the, the many experiences you've had in our sport, how knowledgeable you are, technically, tactically, mentally. So... What kind of sparked for you to start the Binstock Angle and, and to have an opportunity to work with athletes coming up and hopefully, you know, let, let, let's just say it, be better than you hopefully someday? Yeah, that's, that's definitely why I, uh, one of the reasons I started the Binstock Angle so I could, you know, teach these athletes things uh, I learned late and I can teach them early. And then hopefully they don't have to, uh, they can speed the learning process, speed the growth process because it really, at the, at the highest, I mean, life in general, but at the higher level, 
anybody can kind of execute technical skills. And we all hear about, like you said, you know, it's the mental toughness. Yeah, sure. But there has to be an action that comes with that. And if you don't know how, if you're not aware of that, then you'll, you won't even get there. So the Binstock angle uh, kind of has two angles. One, it's mindset. So it'll just talk about things that we go through and I've gone through, uh, you know, like becoming the best version of yourself, how to build confidence, how to stay optimistic, how to overcome the need for validation or approval, which is huge in general, but obviously with social media these days, uh, you know, overcoming fear of failure, uh, how to cultivate resilience, because uh, you're going to deal with adversity. So how do you execute under pressure and manage risk? All those things. And then the other angle is the video analysis part where, you know, I wish I was kind of uh, someone who has had that physical capacity. I mean, I had enough, but if I was that next level plus my video knowledge, you know, who knows, but if I could uh, show these, these athletes how to watch video one of themselves so they can learn how to be more of an efficient player, but two, how to watch a game of an opponent. And I know you're amazing at this. Sam uh, Schachter sings your praises on your ability to create a game plan. So you might have to come on and one of my, uh, I'll have to host you and get me to take, take through a match. But uh, just to show these kids how to watch uh, opponents and then how to create a game plan for their particular strengths. Because that's what I love about beach. You don't, yes, indoor it helps if you're bigger and stronger and faster for sure. But beach you can get away with it because you can be a little bit more tactical. You can be more strategic you can have better anticipation better accuracy better vision you just have to know what your strengths are and if you can create a game plan and a, and a way and a style of play that is tailored to your strengths then you can be successful no matter what and it doesn't matter you know how what, what your physical you know capacity or what your perceived limitations are so i just want to kind of teach the athletes that and hopefully they can uh, yeah definitely use that to do more than i ever did this is this is awesome, man. Hopefully, people take advantage of that. And one thing that came to mind as you're explaining this is your blocking style is still something we talk about with our athletes. Where I think in Canada, we've been lucky to have yourself, Saxton, and Maverick, who we still talk about today. And I and I'm sure if we had him on, Pedlo would say that like it's it's influenced his game and some of the younger blockers as well. So just going through your career, what kind of triggered for you that you you knew you could have a different style blocker? Because I think. Uh, again, no, no disrespect intended. Let's just say it. You and Phil Dalhouse are different style players, and you can't block like he does, right? And even Mole does some stuff that like only he can do. So, how did you finally accept that, like, what your style was going to be, and how you could find a competitive advantage and still be like a top tier athlete, even though like you had different physical advantages than maybe some of the other blockers on tour? Yeah, that's exactly what I had to do. I had to understand my particular style and try to block like someone, you know, because I'm not. Undersized, but I'm not definitely not like you said, like Phil or Mole, not even close. So I can't really block the way they did. But it started because I was a middle um, on the junior national team and definitely undersized for that. So I couldn't go up and hang and dip. I had to get my timing on point. Um, so that helped a little bit with the, the, the lateral movement. And for the beach, I tried different things. Yeah, I tried to do, uh, you know, hang and then press, go late, um, show and take. And until I found what worked for me, I wasn't really able to be. Uh, as efficient but i do remember you know i just remember coming up when you're young and you got to be like i gotta jump huge and press huge and just be massive and then i, I remember hearing uh phil being told by todd in a timeout and phil's like hey so what should i do should i like jump up and then dive into his angle or you know press my inner hand keep my and then phil, uh, todd just looks at him and he's like just put your hands where you think the ball is going to cross the net okay <laughs> yeah <laughs> i was like whoa 
uh, you know, mind blown. I'm like, what? There's no, you know, there's no fake in, there's no sky, there's no peaking. Like, and that's all he told me to think about. And it's funny enough, it sounds a little too simple and cliche, but after I started applying that, I was like, yeah, who cares how high you jump or whatever? And you realize if you actually look at the net, it's not like the ball crosses that much higher than that. Yes, they do, but those people that are hitting the ball higher than you can press are risking hitting it out the back a lot. And, you know, they don't like that. They want to bring that ball down quick. So if you can kind of just even get slow down touches, that's the key. And being late. I used to always think like being huge early was the way to go. But uh, every, the best players in the world, doesn't matter how high you press, they can see you. So if you can stay out of their vision long enough but still get up just enough to press, that's really the key. If you're a little too late, you obviously won't press in time. If you're too early, they'll see you. So, again, like any other skill, you know, for any athletes that want to learn this and coming up, I would error both ways. So when you're in practice, jump up early and see how that works. Go very late, see how that works. Both of those won't work, but then you can start kind of calibrating in between and then when you find that little, you know, happy medium Goldilocks zone, that's and you get that feel. That's when you kind of sh- strive and chase for it. Because even if you do it again and you miss, be process oriented with it. Who cares about you know kind of what happened? Try to be objective and be like, oh, was I late? Was I early? And honestly, the best way I learned was watching myself in the video because you think you're doing something in your mind while you're playing, and then you go to back and watch yourself and be like, oh, okay, guess I wasn't. I love that Todd story. It reminds me of like just talking to John Child or Marquise, and they have such a, a mind for the game that they can explain like the most complicated thing with like a simple thing, like just get your hands over the net where the ball's going to be. Like that's, that, that era of player is awesome. <laughs> totally. Hebert and I would joke about that too because John, talk about, I mean, like to be honest, I should have mentioned him because watching him block was so inspirational. And I learned so much about him and I, I uh, mimicked my style uh, to his because when I watched him block Jeff Nygaard at the Olympics, I don't know how many times, nine or something, this guy, you know, Jeff Nygaard is what, six, seven or something? And John's, you know, I don't know, six, one. How many times he blocked him? I was like, oh my God, it's possible, you know? He's <laughs> taking down, uh, you know, the, the big Russian from Rocky Four or whatever. So even though he's American, but uh, boy, uh, watching John Child block was so inspiring and I, I learned so much from him. And you're right, he was just kind of being, you know, he was the best player in my in my opinion. Um, and he was just able to simplify things without being overcomplicated. You know, Mark would do something amazing instead of being like, oh, way to do this. And he'd be like, good. <laughs> okay, good. All right, I guess that settles that. And how did you find, knowing like how you looked at the game and all these little things that you're picking up, how did you ever combine it? Because whenever we've had indoor middles on the show, it's funny to hear that like, yeah, coach is telling me to block to one, but the guy's hitting to five because obviously guys can see you and make actions and stuff. So when you're combining like the mental and tactical stuff you're talking about, how did you know that a play was going to be set up? Like, how could you have the patience to be beat and have it be like seven, five, but you knew at 18, 17, you're going to get them, right? Like, does that come back to your experience or how did you know that like he saw something and you were going to be able to like pocket that and use it against him later on in the match? Uh, yes, experience. Unfortunately, I wish it was like, no, not, I mean, you could uh, fast forward that experience by the video, which is why I started this because you think you see something in a match and then you're just going on what you think you saw. But if you go back and watch the match and you're looking at him and you slow it down, then you can actually learn to, to change your timing. And at that level, it's really milliseconds is the difference. So you kind of like I remember I was playing against Ricardo first and usually, you know, let's say we're running one of those four plays or something like that. I'll, I'll fake to the cutty and then go to the four play or and to the line. That will work almost on everybody. But it didn't work on him, and I would, you have to just try different things. So one time, I just stood there and went. didn't work. 
And the only time something worked on him was I double fake. Like I went to the line, came back, and then I had to go again, and I got it. But I mean, it's so energy taxing that a guy, you know, he looks so late and he's that good. So um, yeah, if, if for young athletes that are trying to figure out timing, you just got to try different things. And when something works, try don't just get excited. Oh, I got the point. Like why did that work? And if it doesn't work, you know, don't just get upset. Oh, I lost the point. Like think about. Be objective. Did you go late? Did you go early? If you don't really know, have a thin set of eyes, film your practices or matches, and just try different things because you just have to, like, the more you fail, ironically, you kind of hear a lot, the more you fail, the, the earlier you fail, uh, the better it'll be, which is kind of cool with that Jordan documentary, right? Like, all these shots he missed and how many times he lost. Like, you don't think about that stuff when you hear his name, right? Yeah, yeah, I think that was really well done. Just like all the answers you're giving here. Hopefully, people talk about this podcast the same way they're talking about the last dance, but. Uh... <laughs> Yeah, that was amazing. One thing that I think our, our current guys are trying to kind of copy with your blocking style that I thought you were always really good at was was your front. And not only having a front, but being able to work like multiple blocks out of that or by showing a front. And like you said, against Ricardo, like faking one way or going back. So what are you doing to set up that front? Like, are you taking big steps? Are you taking little steps? Like, how are you kind of positioning yourself? And then when does the move actually happen if you had to think about it like if somebody's really good at looking are you waiting for them to actually like do the head bob and look or when do you kind of start your action uh yeah no great uh great segue i, I do look for exactly that uh because you got to know if you're you know playing someone who doesn't care about vision and just going up to as hard as they can that you don't have to worry about you know playing games and being out of the vision you just have to be big and strong uh, but if you're playing someone that's smart and tactical you definitely have to time that properly so, I mean, for a guy like myself, I know we talked about knowing your style. So, you know, if you're a deering or a mole, you could uh, have the affordability to jump a little earlier. But for myself to make sure I was peaking at the height of some of these guys were hitting, I had to go so late and it was really difficult initially. And I didn't really get it down pat until I watched myself in video and slowed it down. But uh, a cue that I would use was initially I would watch the ball always and I really wasn't watching the player. So we did this drill where the ball is being tossed uh, in practice behind me over the net and the hitter is coming towards me. So really I can only watch the hitter for timing. And that, after doing that, it changed. Because, you you know, it's one thing as an athlete to be told something, you get it. But until you feel it, your body can't reproduce it. So that was kind of the aha moment. So now what I do is after they look and they jump, I still haven't jumped yet. A lot of times it's hard not to jump with the player. But uh, if you peak too early, you won't you will be on your way down. Or if you go too late, you won't be pressed in time. So I wait until they're starting their windup and about to come through for a hit. And as they start hitting that's when I kind of jump into whatever I'm going to uh, block, whether it's angle or line. So that's what keeps me from being late. But in terms of the front, yeah, the first move, I, I do a big step to get in front of them because I used to play hockey as a defender, so you can't really look at the puck. You have to be in front of their body. So I use that same concept, always be in front of their body. Even if, you know, let's say they're going to hit line and they're already out there, you still have to get in front of them because they don't know which way you're going to dive. And um, if you make sure you get in front of them, and the biggest difference that I, that I found helped me was micro adjustment steps at the end. You need to do a big one to get there, but if you do a big commitment at the end, you might overcommit and then you can't recover. So if you can take a little mini micro step and then jump, so it's kind of, even if you're not even moving anywhere and you're kind of just resetting your feet, that will help you uh, with the proper timing and alignment. 
And how are you thinking about your press? Because I'm thinking about when you came in and spoke to our next gen group, like you almost encourage them that they should be on the net once or twice early just to show that like, because when you're making these big moves to the side, you're going to lose height, right? So it puts a lot of emphasis on like anything above the height of the net really needs to be reaching over the net, right? So when you're thinking about like your hand position and your move, like how are you making sure you're, you're pressing on time and really taking away the space you want to? Uh, yeah, good memory. You know, that's exactly um, the difference where if you don't know, again, you know, your partner could be like, press, press. And, you know, I've been in that same spot where as a defender and a blocker and you think you're pressing, but, you know, objectively in the camera, it shows you're not. So in order to get a feel of what it actually is, you kind of have, and this is any skill in volleyball, I would err on both ways. You know, if you're trying to hit a cut shot, err too far out and then err in the middle. So with blocking, the error on that is to actually press so much, but you're on the net. And then you tell your partner, okay, I might be on the net one or two. Don't, don't give me crap for that. And if they give you the green light, then your body knows how much is too much. And then you can kind of dial back from there. So uh, that's why I felt it really helped me because it gives you that tactile awareness. And also, instead, you know, indoor, a lot of times when I was coming from walking, I would jump up and press at the peak. But beach, you kind of, guys are so good at changing their, their rhythm and their pace of hit that you kind of have to press as you're coming over. You can't wake and wait to your peak to press because you'll probably get beat so if you can practice pressing every part of your hand as it goes over you actually don't have to be as high if you're pressing your timing is on point man this is awesome stuff just a, a couple more questions so working with the youth and their mental stuff is there kind of one pillar that you wish you had when you were still growing up like obviously you're going to cover a lot of stuff and you can do as many layers as you want with this but as like a foundation layer is there something that you're like man i wish i would have known as like a grade 10 athlete that like I don't know, self-talk or goal setting or even just like watching video and being vulnerable and honest with what you're seeing. Like what are, what are some big pieces that you think are like every young athlete should really try to instill this in their game? I would say the most important thing is resilience because you're going to lose uh, matches. You're going to lose tournaments. You're going to lose points. But if you can, and not being you know upset about that and you can really yeah, it's being staying objective. That's so hard because you're in the match and you care so much about it. But you know, if you can find, but it's scary. It's scary to kind of take risk and, and lose, right? So if you kind of find that working relationship with like failure, because uh, you know, if you speak to any world class performer, they still have like a fear of failure. They just know how to channel and work with it. So if you can learn, you know, I know, I know I speak a lot of athletes and like, oh, I don't, I, I get nervous and I have anxiety and I don't like that. And, you know, they're hoping that I can tell them things to, that will go away. And the unfortunate part, or fortunate once you become aware of it, is that it's not going to go away, but you don't need that to be gone to perform well. Like, you know, I feel like this idea of, like, fearlessness is just kind of, like, created from the outside of a spectator. But those have, have been there. They know what, what they feel. So they, you just got to find a way to harness fear and nerves and anxiety and just have a relationship with them. And then you convert that into intensity because – you know, it, it's not just like sports either. It's, it's everybody. So if you can kind of be resilient and, and stay optimistic, even though when you're when you're down, that was the biggest uh, change for me. I remember when I was younger, I was down and I was just pissed, <laughs> you know, and I wasn't really staying. I wasn't resilient. I kind of just if I started playing bad, oh, that was it. That was the match. If I started playing well, it was great. Um, but even you know, losing a set or losing a couple points, you can kind of just keep resilient you'd be surprised how things will work out in the end but it's it, that's the toughest part when i was younger when you're losing and staying staying optimistic but if you can practice that i think that's the biggest thing awesome i'm in man how can we uh find out more about the binstock angle how can we sign up like what are what are the next steps to get in contact with you cool yeah i uh well email joshua.binstock at olympian.org 
And then also, I guess, I, I Instagram, I got a, the Binstock Angle handle as well. So you can go there and the link's in bio to, to register for the webinar. I'll have, uh, I think the first one will be a complimentary, but it might be before this is aired. I'm thinking about doing the first one on June 7th, uh, 7 p.m. And then the one after that, June 9th. So the one on June 7th will be on the mindset angle, so to speak. So that'll be, you know, fear of failure and that's, Know, free for anybody to join. It'll be interactive, so I'll be you know, chatting about my experiences. But I want some athletes to come on there and talk about theirs. And then um, the one two days later will be I'll be breaking down my video of uh, the Brazilians, the eventual gold medalists from the, the Olympics, just to kind of just talk about what I what I saw, what I was feeling. But a lot of times the athletes might want to have like a private session, so to speak, with themselves or a semi-private if they have a beach partner, because a lot of times you know I've been talking to athletes and little apprehensive to be totally honest about these sensitive subjects if other people you know are involved as well so i'll do some private sessions as well to to cater to those particular athletes or if they want you know look at their own game tape and and figure out how we can uh, you know make them more effective and efficient on the court by watching their own tape that's uh, an option as well wow this is this is awesome stuff so yeah we'll include all that in our show notes so it sounds like there's a lot of layers it sounds like it's gonna be awesome to hear you kind of lecture on a topic and take some serious notes and then also have like like you said option to have like a a partner meeting with you and have some one-on-one access so this this sounds amazing man thanks for creating this awesome project cool yeah my pleasure hopefully uh hopefully i'll be able to make it happen i don't know how much time i guess i'll I'll be able to do you know i guess commit to it with my my uh, clinic reopening again but uh, it's something i have passion for and i love it and i wish it was around so to speak when i was uh younger i mean i did have some sports psychologists work with us but it wasn't like they knew what it was like to you know be out there like 11 8 down <laughs> or 13 all and it just didn't resonate as much so hopefully i can provide what was lacking in my um development and, and get them inspired to uh, have that awareness Amazing, man. Well, I, I can't thank you enough for doing this. And obviously, hearing about your story and everything you've accomplished, everybody knows that you've played at the highest level, but I'm sure you're not immune to some silly stuff happening. So I was hoping you could give us a, a funny road story before we let you go. <laughs> oh, where, where do we begin on those, man? Those are, uh, uh, it's fun. Well, I, you know what? I, get, I have to go with my, uh, my, my best buddies and family. You know, I guess they're calling now the Binners Beauties. They all, made, they, they didn't grow up you know, watching volleyball because I didn't play it too much. They're mostly hockey guys, but they, they bring their hockey mentality. They were there for um, my Olympic match, uh, like the, the trial match and squad in the trial match, uh, or in the actual Olympics in 2012. So, yeah, they were all, they came to uh, London, and I didn't get to see them too much because, you know, obviously we were playing, and all I saw was, like, you know, the Toronto Star and Instagram and stuff like that, and these guys were making a name for themselves because they're walking around, you know, uh, well, London with with hockey helmets and uh, you know capes as Canadian flags, and they're all wearing the royal family masks, and they're you know they're just having a time. So people are asking for their autographs, and and then they had uh, you know CBC ended up wanting to do a uh, an interview on it because of all the notoriety and publicity they're getting. I didn't even really see any of this. You know, it was 11 a.m. after a night game, so nobody showed up except for my brother and my dad. <laughs> they said they would, but uh, rough morning clearly. But, uh, yeah, no, it was amazing to have them there. I mean, you know, the Canada house, you have to have badges. Uh, and it was, you know, very formal. You know, you get free drinks and free food in, in, uh, in London. 
And so they're, hey, can we come in there? And I was like, no, I'll try, guys. But I mean, they, they look a little hooliganish, not gonna lie, especially in London. <laughs> and uh, they're like, listen, Josh, sorry, we can't. You know, we got you know, people here. You know, they paid for their passes, and this is only kind of for you know limited space and and complimentary. And you know, people are wearing blazers, and these guys are wearing face paint and, and shorts and hockey helmets. Uh, I was like, sorry, guys. You know, I you know, they know we get it, we get it. So I get with my family. Half hour later, I see them all in there. I don't know how they ended up pulling that off. And next thing you know, they got the whole place kind of you know, loosened it up. Everybody's dancing with them, partying with them. I think they ended up getting like free Molson for like a year after that. So the Molson rep, the Molson rep was there. So they ended up, uh, you know, having the rest of the uh, rest of the week free beers and food and just making everybody's time so it was just hilarious to see them all. I'll have to send you some pictures and videos of, of them in the stands but I always knew where they were in the crowd that's for sure they're you know they got their uh, their masks and, and uh, beers coming by and they're like excuse me pardon me and everybody you know they just became like a sensation they followed me ever since they were actually at Pan Am in Toronto as well so to have them there was uh, hilarious they also actually it's on YouTube it's People really want to hear what they're all about, and I love them so much. The match we played against Lupo and Nikolai in um, our our elimination match, it was very weird. I don't think there's ever going to be a match like that again because it was an Olympic match, but it wasn't in the Olympic Stadium because it was kind of a lucky loser match. So nobody was actually allowed to watch that match. But these guys somehow... <laughs> End up, end up getting front row beside Leonard. Leonard's kind of like, listen, guys, I, I get your sport, but I'm going to have to sit over here. I can't be really associated with you, uh, for your shenanigans. <laughs> and they were ruthless. You don't hear this type of, you know, chirping. Like, they never said, the words that they said were never rude, but just when they were talking, you know, when you go up and serve a ball, you're supposed to be quiet. These guys would just be yelling, like, Lupo, and, you know, little things like that. And they, to the point, they were so ruthless that Italy was actually going to protest if they lost. And they, even after they won, they were like, you know what? But they came up to them after and they were like, we get it. But you, you'll never hear anybody cheer like that at a volleyball game. I've never have. Um, but, you know, that gets me going. I can't I can't lie because, you know, with them being like that, I can't, you know, play bad because uh, then I make them look bad by, by uh, having them chirp and me play bad. So I kind of love that stuff. But, yeah, it was, it was funny to have them follow me around the uh, – the globe with that support and that so much yeah who knows if you played bad they might turn on you i think they were just that invested and emotional that they might let you have it a couple times too totally yeah yeah <laughs> i was it was more about like fear i was like okay you know looking across the net too they're all up there 11 8 down that was the moment when i came out of the timeout they're all there i was like i can't leave this court and go into them all sad and you know and upset so i was like no you know i see looking into their eyes and they're giving me like the fist pumps they're like we've been through too much for you to you know let this go <laughs> It's just so funny. So yeah, that's so much happened for sure. Well, amazing. Yeah, I do remember the Italy match, and you can see like uh, the one camera shot that somebody posted is just on the baseline, and you can see Lupo every once in a while is like looking over because he just he can't get a sense for what's going on. It's like he's never seen this before. So it was definitely definitely a great moment. I mean, if we ever get a pro tour, I mean, you'll have to play just so we can bring out the super fans and they can set the tone for everybody else. <laughs> oh yeah. Well, I mean. You know, that's pretty standard, at least back in the day or sometimes with AVP. I remember the one tournament I played uh, was 9 by 9 the only tournament I played on Manhattan Beach. I think it was the one year that AVP kind of had their lockout or something. Um, and the fans were all sitting on the ground around, and I was playing against Rosie in the finals, so Rosie's Raiders. I'm, I'm sure you've uh, 
heard of them, but if not, they are just as ruthless. And they, yeah, they were just letting me have it. It was kind of like, oh my God, guys, come on, did you do research or what, you know? And, um, but after, you know, having drinks of the same thing, they were like, ah, we had to give it to you, you know? And I was like, hey, you know what? My buddies are the same thing. I, I totally can respect it, you know? I don't. But, you know, at the time, just yelling profanities. And he was like, how is this? This is a beach volleyball guy. But, you know, Manhattan crew is a whole different different world. So, oh, Amazing. We'll have to get you on again to tell that story. But for, for now, I know you're a busy guy and we've taken a lot of your time. And it, it's great to not only hear about your career, but you've given back to the sport in so many ways and still helping guys on the national team that it, it just seems like a natural step. And I think you're going to do amazing with the Binstock angle. And thanks for coming on the show and kind of describing all you did and sharing all the details you did, because I, I definitely learned a lot and I bet our listeners did too. Cool. I appreciate that. Looking forward to more.